I want to let you know up front that this morning's sermon is going to be very different from the typical sermon at Grace Church. As pastors and as a church, we hold to the authority of God's Word in every aspect of life and in faith. What we have in, in this book, in the Word of God, is this is God's revelation to us. It is, it's inspired, meaning it's breathed out by God. It's inerrant. It's never wrong. It's infallible. It never fails. It is profitable. It's good for us. It's sufficient. It's all that we need, and it's eternal. It lasts forever. And as a church, we labor together to know God in His Word, to encounter Him, to behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And the Bible, this book, is the richest distillation of this glory. This is where we know God. We know Him through His Word. So when we gather each week, central to our time together is the preached Word. We gather around God's Word to hear God speak to us. God addresses His people through His Word. And for Larry and I as your pastors, we simply seek to be faithful heralds of God's Word. In one sense, our objective is to get out of the way and let God speak to you so that you hear God's voice through His Word. So on a typical Sunday, we are normally preaching verse by verse through a book of the Bible. We don't skip over stuff because all of Scripture is breathed out by God. There are no unnecessary parts in Scripture. There are not some parts that are, hey, these are necessary, but you know what, these pages, not necessary. There is nothing superfluous in this book. Consequently, the structure of our sermons that we preach, they're not determined by the burden that Larry or I have on a particular Sunday. We don't come up with our sermon outline and then go searching God's Word for a text that might fit what we want to say. No. No, each week we seek to allow the structure of what we preach to be determined by the text that we are preaching. This is what's known as expository preaching. So this is what we do week in and week out. This morning, however, we're, going to, we're just going to move away, break away from that model. And instead, we're going to look together at one verse, and then the rest of the sermon is going to be an illustration of that one verse. So please open your Bible to the book of Jude if you have one. And if you don't, there are some Bibles available in the back for you as well. As you turn to Jude, let me just tell you where we're going. So we're going to look at this text, and then I'm going to illustrate it by looking at what is known as the Reformation. This year, 2017, October 31st, 2017 to be precise, marks the 500th anniversary of the start of what is known as the Protestant Reformation. And this morning, my hope is that you come away with two things. On the one hand, I want you to come away with an awareness of what this Reformation was. And on the other hand, I want you to know why it still matters. Understand why we would still talk about this today. And I think this verse that we're going to look at will provide a strong foundation for us. So, turning to Jude, in the middle of the first century, Jude, who was the brother of Jesus, penned a letter to a group of Christians that he loved dearly. And he wrote this letter because there was teaching that crept into the church, that threatened the very message of salvation. We're going to look at is verse 3. I'm just going to read verses 1 and 2 as well. This is the Word of God. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved, in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. And this is the verse we're going to focus on. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you 
to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Jude cuts right to the quick here and tells his readers why he's writing. He writes to them to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So before we get to talking about the Reformation this morning, I just want to explain a few aspects of of this phrase that Jude uses. First thing we're going to notice is this word contend. In the original Greek, the word word contend, it it spoke of military action or or some um, athletic context. Today in sports, especially in baseball, you hear people talk about the grind of the season. There's a day in and day out fight. There's this intense effort that you just perpetually have to give yourself to. And this is what Jude is calling his, Jude is calling his readers to. One commentator uses the phrase, strive intensely. That's what it means to contend, to strive intensely. They are to strive intensely. And then he tells us, for what? What are they to strive intensely for? And this is the second thing we're going to look at, the faith. They're to contend for the faith. Now, Jude is not calling his readers here to contend for, for faith, as if he's telling them, just fight for hope, hang on, keep the faith. No, he's talking about the faith. And what is the faith? Well, the faith here represents sound doctrine. It speaks of the truth that one must believe in order to be saved. That's what the faith is. Now, the next part of the phrase helps us to understand this a bit better. They're to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. There is an objective fixed message that was delivered at a certain point in time in its entirety to the apostles. It was delivered to them, meaning they didn't just make it up. It came to them from God, and it was given to them so that they might preserve it, so that they might pass it down to future generations. This truth was delivered to the saints, as it was once said, perfectly, sufficiently, as never after needing any alteration or addition. What the apostles were once given was was complete, and it is the foundation for the Christian faith. And there's nothing that we can add to this message, and nothing should be taken away from it. Jude's readers, those loved and called and kept by God, are to give themselves with intensity to preserving and protecting this faith, the message of salvation in Jesus Christ. This truth, this message of salvation, this is what Jude is calling his readers to strive intensely to preserve. And Grace Church, brothers and sisters, this isn't just Jude's call to his first century readers. This is God's call to his church today. This is God's call to us. We have received a sacred trust that we must know, we must proclaim, and we must preserve. We must contend for this truth, contend for the faith. One of our primary tasks as those who have repented of our sins and placed our trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, as those who have been brought into God's family, one of our primary tasks is to contend for the faith. Grace Church, we must strive intensely to preserve the faith that has been given to us by God. There are a lot of things that the church can contend for. You can look around at, at different churches and even look around at what different people contend for. People are always contending for something. 
Today we see people in churches contend for all kinds of stuff. Some good and some not so good. People contend for justice and liberty. People contend for the environment or the priority of the family or unity or sexual liberty or the health of their community or their political priorities. There are all kinds of things people contend for. The list could go on and on. But God's call to the church, to us today, is to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. This is all the more important because the church is at constant risk of losing what has been fully and perfectly given to it. And we lose it by by changing the message, by minimizing the message, by maybe taking away from it or adding something to it. We bring error into it. And when I describe that, it can be easy to think of, well, I mean, that's kind of all outside of us. We're okay here. But the danger isn't primarily outside the church. It's within the church because the church is comprised of sinful people who each have a heretic within. As sinners, we are by nature prepared to drink in all kinds of errors and lies. You know, if we could erase the memory of every heresy, of every false gospel, every false teaching that has ever existed, just wiped it out so that not one shred of remembrance of these existed, there is still enough in one man or one woman to bring all those heresies back the very next day. Such is our state and such is our need to earnestly contend for the faith that has been entrusted to us. We do this for our own sake and for the sake of our children and our children's children. A day will soon come when none of us will be here anymore. There's a hymn that says, Time, like an ever-rolling stream, bears all its sons away. Generations come and generations go. The hymn goes on, They fly forgotten as a dream dies at the opening day. Yet God and His Word, they stand eternally. What we do week in and week out isn't just about us today or us this week or just us. We stand in a long line of those who have been called, loved, and kept by God, who have contended for the faith delivered to them, who have preserved and proclaimed the truth year after year, decade after decade, century after century. Saints contending for the faith. Now, in order to contend for the faith, one of our first priorities is to know what this faith is, to understand the faith. And so to aid our church in this over the next several weeks, Larry and I are going to be preaching on some of these foundational realities, the doctrine that we build our lives upon. Now what we're going to highlight are known as the five solas, S-O-L-A-S, solas. These are five biblical truths that in many ways encapsulate the faith. Now sola is the Latin word for alone. And what we're going to look at are these five things. We're going to look at scripture alone. Faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, and the glory of God alone. Now these phrases, they don't cover all essential Christian doctrine, but they do go a long way in articulating how we can be made right with God. And then they express how we are to live in light of this truth. And it was really this this word alone that gave fuel to the fire of the Reformation. You see... No one disagreed with whether or not Scripture was God's revelation at the time of the Reformation. That was just generally held to be true. Scripture was God's revelation. Some just thought they needed 
a little bit more revelation, primarily from the church that would tell them how to live. Everyone had agreed that you needed faith and, and grace and Christ to be saved, but some thought you also needed your own choice and your own works on top of these things. Alone, this word alone is the pivotal word of the Reformation, and it's still a critical word for us today. Now, I'm really looking forward to these next several weeks. I think we're going to have a, a rich time looking at these truths as we're built up together into the faith that we are to contend for. But today, like I said, it will be different as it has been already so far. And I want to illustrate God's call to us to contend for the faith by looking to the Reformers and how they fought for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Now, if you're taking notes, good luck. I'm, there's not going to be an outline for you to... Uh, you're not going to hear these points come out. Um, feel free to write things that, that might strike you and encourage you, uh, but feel no obligation to be taking notes. I think this is something you just want to listen to and, uh, and be encouraged by. So let me begin my, my extended illustration by setting the context for the Reformation. Now, no doubt many, if not all of you, have heard of the period in history known as, as the Middle Ages or, or the Dark Ages. This period conjures up images of castles and kings and queens and jesters and knights and peasants and royal courts. Now, this pr perspective tends to be overly simplistic, but it does highlight that these, this was a unique age. These were unique times. Another thing that might come to mind from which this period gets one of its nicknames is, is death. People of this period were always close to death. The life expectancy was about 40 years, 40 years old, 40 years of age. And somewhere around one quarter to one third of all babies died before their first birthday. Add to this the devastating effects of the bubonic plague of the 14th century, known as Black Death, which killed nearly one third of the entire European population. And you can understand why this period was so dark, was so morbid. Now when it came to religion, it was the Roman Catholic Church which broadly sought to exercise spiritual authority. This was the, the Catholic Church, meaning Catholic universal. And with this spiritual authority came great political clout and economic advantages. It really paid to be the supreme head of the church, and that's just who the Pope was. But towards the end of this period known as the Middle Ages, which roughly stretches from the 18th, 8th century to the 15th century, 15th, 16th century, there were some cracks in the church's foundation. In the 11th century, the Eastern and Western Church broke apart in what is called the Great Schism. So now there was the Roman Catholic Church in Western Europe, and there was the Eastern Orthodox Church. And that, that divide still exists today. It's kind of hard to be the Catholic Church, the Universal Church, and there's this massive separation. Then in the 14th century, uh, a French pope was appointed. And he liked living in France a whole lot more than the idea of moving to Rome, so he didn't move. And instead, he relocated his papal court to France. And there it stayed through the next six popes. I think it was 68 years. All these popes were French. The Italians didn't like this. The final one, though, Gregory XI, he decided to move the papacy back to Rome. But within a year or so, he died. Shortly thereafter, there was a pope appointed. And then that pope was disputed, and so another pope was appointed, and that pope was disputed by the other pope, and so you've got two popes now. And then a cardinals get together, a group of cardinals get together and say, you know what, neither of those popes are legit. This guy's the pope. So now you've got three popes all calling themselves pope. So it's kind of hard to be the undisputed leader of the church when there are 
three of you, and there's a lot of disputing going back and forth. So along the way, the questions began to arise as to who really has authority in the church. Add to this that throughout the Middle Ages, the leaders of the church, they were, they were politically powerful. And with this power came great corruption. Uh, in one diocese, there was an estimated 1,500 children born each year, illegitimately, fathered by the local bishops and local clergy who were supposed to uh, not be doing that. <laughs> yeah, well said. Uh, so there was great corruption. Uh, the Catholic Church, it was also one of the largest landowners in Western Europe, existing within a system that gave them great privilege of which they took full advantage. Simultaneously to this, there was great discovery and change taking place at the close of the 15th century. So in the 1400s, in 1439, the German Johannes Gutenberg, he develops the movable type printing press, making distribution of books and ideas a new reality. Also, the idea of the flat earth fell apart as exploration thrived. And then in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Now, this all amounted to people's conception of reality and authority to be rapidly changing. And the things that people had held on to for decade after decade, century after century, they're just kind of falling apart. They don't seem as solid as they once did. One historian comments that it was during this time that a new world was being born. Now, it was during this tumultuous time that in 1483, a boy by the name of Martin Luther was born in Germany. Luther, he was exceedingly bright as he grew, and his father, Hans, sought to capitalize on his smarts by sending him to law school. So in 1501, Martin Luther went to university to be trained to be a lawyer. And one day in 1505, while he was heading back to university after visiting his parents, a summer thunderstorm broke out. And at one point, a bolt of lightning struck near Luther, knocking him to the ground. Luther was terrified and he feared for his life. And as he fell, he cried out for help, saying, I will become a monk. And Luther didn't die that night. Instead, he saw this cry that he made as something of a vow that he could never break. So he left law school, despite the protests of his furious father, and he became a monk. Now, not surprisingly, Luther took this business as a monk very seriously. Life as a monk, was, it was a life of, of rules. And in one sense, Luther lived for this. He did everything he possibly could to abide by these rules so that he might be made right with God. That was his, his passion, to be right with God. But the more he did, the more harder he tried, the worse he felt. He wondered if his prayers were sincere enough, or if he took his sins too lightly. So Luther sought to assuage his guilty conscience through confession. He would spend hour after hour evaluating himself, examining his every thought and motive and action, and then he would confess his sin. He, there, was, there were stories of him spending six hours in confession. And he would spend six hours in confession that he would end up missing the prayer service that was going on. So then he would have more things to add to his to-do list after confession. He longed to be made right with God, and he was terrified by the justice of God. How could anyone, let alone him, in all of his sin, ever be accepted by God? Now these ideas, they, they plagued and burdened Luther. Somewhat tired of Luther and his penitential religion, his superiors thought that he should give himself to study and teaching. They kind of wanted to 
Maybe, maybe occupy yourself with something else and uh, you'll, you'll normalize a little bit. So they moved Luther to the University of Wittenberg. Now much happened to Luther over the next few years as he began to teach scripture and theology. So this was in 1510, he moves to Wittenberg. And we'll get into, in, in greater detail, we'll cover exactly what he was discovering during this time over the next few weeks. But there was one thing that Luther was particularly irked by, and that was the Catholic sale of what are known as indulgences. Now, indulgences were not the ice cream that I had for breakfast yesterday morning. I did. (laughs) Indulgences were specific acts that one could complete in order to be freed from purgatory. Catholic teaching held that, that purgatory was the place you would go after you died in order to be prepared for heaven. But this was not, not a happy preparation. This wasn't like preparation on, for the bride on a wedding day. Rather, this was where you were purged from your sins. Every sin you committed added to the time you were to spend in purgatory. And indulgences, they gave a way to alleviate this time or even make it go away altogether. And they were allegedly effective for both you or someone else, for a loved one. But an interesting thing happened in the church. These indulgences, they really became quite a profitable commercial enterprise and one of the primary ways that the church used to raise money. So during the, at the end of the 15th century, early 16th century, Pope, I think it was Leo X at the time, he wanted to refurbish uh, St. Peter's Basilica. And so he authorized this massive sale of indulgences to fund that. Now, the man who led the sale of these indulgences in Germany was a guy by the name of Johann Tetzel. Tetzel was known to declare that his indulgences would make a sinner cleaner than Adam before the fall. And he would say that the the cross of the seller of the indulgences, the cross that the the seller would would have, has as much power as the cross of Christ. If you wanted to help out your poor grandma suffering in purgatory, then you would hear, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. Another compelling one was, place your penny on the drum, the pearly gates open and in strolls mum. <laughs> to Luther, this sale of indulgences was a perversity of the Christian faith and did not line up with God's word. So then, on October 31st, 1517, almost 500 years ago, Luther got up, and proceeded to the door of the main chapel at the university. Now, in one sense, this door was, was like the bulletin board. Or maybe in today's terms, it would be like the community Facebook page. He took out a statement he had written against the perverse sale of these indulgences, which he titled, 95 Theses on the Power and Efficacy of Indulgences, and he hammered them to the door. Now, this single act is often highlighted as the inauguration of the Reformation. And whether or, not, or whether or not you realize it, we are still experiencing the reverberations of this hammer on the Wittenberg Chapel door. This act set off a religious firestorm. And Luther did not expect it to in any way. He actually had, shortly before the 95 Theses, he had entitled a treatise that was 97 Theses against indulgences. That didn't really go anywhere outside of Wittenberg. But this one uh, took, took the world by storm in many ways. Tetzel was furious, understandably, with Luther, and the conflict went all the way back to Rome. The Pope asked Luther's superiors to sort out the issue at their next meeting. But instead of being corrected, Luther found that most of the other monks, they sympathized with his arguments. 
So Luther went back to Wittenberg, and he resumed his study and teaching. Luther then began writing even more, because the more he went back to Scripture, back to the source, the more he felt that he was right. Now this did not appease the religious or political authorities, and they set out over the next several years to label Luther a heretic for going against the church's teachings. They sought to do this through various debates and councils. They would set up an opponent arguing for the church, and they would invite Luther to come. And when he would come to these times, Luther would constantly be appealing to Scripture, going back to God's Word, while his opponents either went back to church tradition or just sought to silence him. Now eventually in 1520, the Pope issued a formal statement, what is known as a bull, a B-U-L-L, a bull, and declared that a wild boar had entered the Lord's vineyard. He was speaking of Luther. He said that all of Martin's, Martin Luther's writings, they should be burned, and Luther was called upon to submit to the church within 60 days, or he would be declared anathema. He would be excommunicated. When Luther received the papal bull, he didn't really take it to heart. He actually burned it. And he burned it along with other books that he deemed to be the worst proponents of popish doctrines. And in response to the papal bull, he released his own tract entitled Against the Execrable Bull of Antichrist. So that didn't win any favors with the Pope, calling him the Antichrist and calling his bull extremely bad. There was no turning back for Luther. Now one of the most remarkable moments in Luther's life came that next year, 1521. After Luther had rejected this decree from the Pope, he was called upon to attend an assembly known as a, a diet or a diet. Now many of you have probably heard the, of the diet of worms. And you, I mean, images pop to mind of Luther eating worms as his diet, as he's suffering for Christ's sake. But that's not at all what took place. The, the deed of, of worms is, worms was the place in Germany where this assembly was held, and the deed was what the assembly was called. And this assembly would determine the fate of Luther. Now at worms, Luther stood before the emperor of the German Empire. The emperor of the German Empire is there, and various political and religious leaders are gathered there. They pointed to his various treatises and books and asked him if he wrote them. They had a stack of them there. Did you write these? He said, yeah, and that's not all I wrote. I wrote more, too. I wrote other stuff. <laughs> then they asked him, do, do you want to take anything back? Will you recant anything that you've written? Now, Luther, aware of, of the consequences of how the, his answer, whatever he gives, uh, he asked for a day to consider. Now, Luther was a man who, who really displayed a remarkable fear of God because one of the things that gave him great pause is if I'm writing these things and it's against church tradition, how can I go against what all these other people have said for so long? So Luther considered his answer for a day. The next day he came back to answer their question. And he responded that he would welcome anyone to refute his teachings from Scripture. Show me in God's word where my writings are wrong. And if they can do so, I, he said, I will be the first person to throw these writings into the fire. I'm happy to burn them. Just show me where they're wrong in Scripture. The authorities saw this as an evasive, and, uh, an evasive tastic, a tactic and stated bluntly, your answer is not to the point. Give us a plain reply to this question. Are you prepared to recant, to take these back, or not? Now, with the whole of the Holy Roman Empire standing against him, Luther boldly replied with these words. He said, Your imperial majesty and your lordships demand a simple answer. 
Here it is, plain and straight. Unless I am convicted of error by the Scriptures and my conscience is taken captive by God's Word, I cannot and will not recant anything. For to act against our conscience is neither safe for us or open to us. On this I take my stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. With this, Luther departed the hall. Later that night, Luther was kidnapped by men who sympathized with him, and they brought him to Wartburg, where he continued to write, and his ideas spread throughout Europe. Now, around this same time, there were other men who began proclaiming similar truths as they preached from God's Word. In Zurich, Switzerland, Holdrich Zwingli, born just two months after Luther, he began introducing his ideas of reform based on what he saw in Scripture. Now, Zwingli, he was, he was a remarkable man. He was known as the, the warrior preacher. There's actually a statue of Zwingli in Zurich where he's holding a Bible in one hand and a sword in the other. He actually died in battle. He was on the front lines, slaughtered by Catholics. He viewed Scripture as the supreme authority in everything. Not the Pope, not the church councils, not church tradition. And eventually, Zurich took the side of Zwingli and, and they broke away from Rome. Now, in England, a man named, by the name of William Tyndale gained access to Luther's writings. He wanted to translate the Bible so that all people could gain access to the unadulterated Word of God. He said to one church leader, If God spare my life ere many years pass, I will cause that boy that drives the plow shall know more of the Scriptures than you do. Tyndale, in England, he came under great persecution. He had to flee the continent several times, come back. But before he was martyred at the age of 42, he managed to translate the entire New Testament and most of the Old. And this work served to bring the fire of the Reformation to England. In 1509 in France, a boy by the name of John Calvin was born. Calvin, he was quiet and studious. And one historian writes that while pitifully weak in body and naturally retiring by temperament, he was dauntingly strong in both mind and will. A lamb he was born, a lion he became for the Lord who saved him. Calvin became the theologian of the Reformation. Over his life, he wrote over 50 volumes of biblical commentary, 30 volumes of correspondence, 2,500 sermon manuscripts, and various tracts and treatises, and he faithfully pastored. From a young age, Calvin's father, he wanted him to become a priest. And so around the age of 12, he was sent to Paris to study theology. But just a few years after Calvin started, his father changed his mind and sent him off to law school. This was in 1526. And it was while there that Calvin learned Greek, and in his, own words, in his own words, he became a lover of Jesus Christ, as he clearly latched on to the theology of salvation that Luther taught. Now, things became more tense in France as those with Lutheran ideas were increasingly marginalized and persecuted, and Calvin was exiled. Eventually, he sought exile in Strasbourg, which, for you Washington Nationals fans, that should be an easy one to remember. He took a circuitous route, though, and passed through a Swiss city called Geneva. Now, at this point, Geneva had already broken off from Rome, but it was left in turmoil as people we're trying to figure out what religion should look like. As Calvin passed through, really he just meant to pass through for a day or two, word got out that he was in town. And that word came to the leader of the Reformed Church there, a guy named William Farrell, not to be confused with Will Farrell. Farrell implored Calvin to stay and help with the Reformation in Geneva. But Calvin, he just wanted to quietly move on 
go study in the library somewhere and write. And that somewhere was Strasbourg. That's where he wanted to go. But Farrell would have none of it. Farrell was, was allegedly a fiery redhead. Calvin writes that Farrell proceeded to utter an imprecation that God would curse my retirement and the tranquility of the studies which I sought if I should withdraw and refuse to give assistance when the necessity was so urgent. By this imprecation, I was so stricken with terror that I desisted from the journey which I had undertaken. So in 1536, Calvin joins Farrell in Geneva, and he assisted him in developing a confession of faith for the Genevan church. Now, it didn't take long, though, for the local authorities to begin pushing back against Farrell and Calvin and their reforms. Farrell and Calvin seemed to be going too far for the civil authorities' comfort. And so Calvin and Farrell were both forbidden from pe- preaching, which is something they did not stop doing. So it ended up, though, that less than two years after Calvin arrived in Geneva, he was exiled once again. Now this time, Calvin was finally able to make it to Strasbourg, hoping for the quiet life of study he always wanted. But when he arrived, a guy by the name of Martin Bucer persuaded him to lead a French-speaking church there. And Calvin's influence continued to grow. But just three years later, Geneva was in turmoil once again, and the city asked him to return. They saw Calvin as the answer to their problems. Now, Calvin wanted nothing to do with it. He said that he would rather have a hundred deaths to this cross. But William Farrell and Martin Bucer, they intervened and eventually persuaded Calvin to go back to Geneva. Now, one of my favorite stories of Calvin's life is upon his return in 1541. The Sunday that Calvin was set to return to his Genevan pulpit was filled with anticipation. This guy had been bitterly kicked out of the church, and now he's back. Like, what's he going to say? I mean, so everybody is lit, excited about what is about to happen. Now, Calvin enters the pulpit, and he picks up preaching from the very verse that he left off three years ago. He didn't come with his own vendetta against his persecutors or with some bold agenda of his own making. He came to preach God's word. So he picked up in the Psalms right where he was three years ago. Calvin, through his faithful ministry and work, taught and discipled various men who eventually spread throughout Western Europe. One man in particular that spent some time in Geneva with Calvin was John Knox, who led the Scottish Reformation. Even today, Calvin's legacy is pronounced as his writings shine with biblical fidelity and theological clarity. These men, Calvin, Tyndale, Zwingli, Luther, and others like them, they recovered the gospel of Jesus Christ as taught in Scripture. They were marked by always returning back to the source of their faith, the Bible. So why does all this matter to us? Why should we talk about it today? Why should Larry and I spend time telling you about the Reformation and spending time in these truths? Well, here, here we are 500 years from the day that Luther hammered his theses to the chapel door of Wittenberg. And this matters because in the first place, this is our story. Our roots lie in these events. And these men aren't our crazy uncles that we try to forget about, although they were a little crazy. But they aren't unblemished heroes that we should idolize either. Their legacy is that these men faithfully sought to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. They labored to know and understand this faith as it has been revealed in the Word of God. 
They sought to faithfully articulate this faith so that others could know, understand, and apply God's Word to their lives. So this is our story. So that's why it matters. That's why we should care. Another reason why we should care, the Reformation matters because eternal life still matters. At its heart, the Reformation was about answering this question. What must I do to be saved? They wanted to know how they could know God, this holy, magnificent, glorious God, and be made right with Him. It was from a desire to answer this question that drove the Reformers to study Scripture with intense effort. This is a matter of massive significance because this is a question with eternal consequence. You see, the Reformation, it's still happening today. It was always intended to be a perpetual movement. There was this phrase, semper reformanda, which is normally translated always reforming. Always reforming. The church is to be always reforming. But this can give the impression that we're always changing, always moving forward to be something else. But that is not what we are called to. The claim of the Reformation and God's call to us is to be always reforming back to God's Word. The church is not meant to move forward into some ambiguous future state, but to be always moving back to knowing and applying God's Word so that we can move forward in faithfulness to God. We move back to God's words so that we can move forward in faithfulness to God. The Reformation highlights our call to not neglect or give up on contending for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. We contend because this is what God calls us to. We contend because this is the path to the good life. A generation after the Reformation, various church leaders got together throughout Europe and came up with what are known as catechisms. These were series of questions and answers informed by Scripture that taught the faith. They taught the great doctrines that make up the Christian faith. One of these catechisms was composed in Heidelberg, Germany in 1563. And question one asks this question. What is your only comfort in life and in death? And the answer is this. That I am not my own, but belong body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to Him. Christ, by His Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Him. These, these words were no doubt inspired in some measure by words that Martin Luther penned 50 years before this. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abides still. His kingdom is forever. This reality is our hope and our comfort. And this is what the Reformation went back to. Through the theology of the Reformation, we find comfort, peace, joy, and hope. Because the theology of the Reformation, it points us back to God. The path to the good life is not found by searching within ourselves for answers or pursuing the satisfaction of our own desires. The only comfort, joy, hope, and peace we have is found outside of us in God alone. Now I want to close with a quote from John Calvin because it really encapsulates the relevance of the theology of the Reformation to us. Calvin writes this, 
It will not suffice simply to hold that there is one whom all ought to honor and adore, unless we are also persuaded that he is the fountain of every good, and that we must seek nothing elsewhere than in him. For until men recognize that they owe everything to God, that they are nourished by his fatherly care, that he is the author of their every good, that they should seek nothing beyond him, they will never yield him willing service. Nay, unless they establish their complete happiness in him, they will never give themselves truly and sincerely to him. May we as a church give ourselves truly and fully to him. And may we be always contending for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Be always moving back to knowing and applying God's word so that we can move forward in faithfulness to him. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Father, thank you for for the, the shoulders that we get to stand upon as we gather around your word, as we contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. We are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses that proclaims your faithfulness and proclaims the hope that we have in you. Father, I pray that over the next few weeks as we uh, reflect on the theology of the Reformation, as we look to the fact that we can only be saved by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, that we can only live under the authority of Scripture alone. As we look to these things, may we be built up into you, who is our head. May we, may we hold tightly to the faith, and may we find comfort and joy there. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.